0: You're listening to the Agony Column News Report, featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.
1: I was a 23-year-old freshman graduate student on the early morning drive I thought about how wholly unprepared I was for my first day interviewing prisoners in the violent offender facility. For the past several years, I had divided my time between studying the research literature on psychopaths, undergoing training in brain imaging techniques, and engaging in a loosely related line of research on the study of brain electrical activity associated with auditory processes of killer whales, comparable in many ways to those of humans. Becoming ever more fascinated by psychopathy research, I had also been vigorously pursuing mentorship with my academic hero the founding father of the modern research in psychopathy, Professor Robert D. Hare, who has only recently accepted me as a graduate student. Yet now as I walk past the metal detectors at the entrance to the compound surrounded by razor wire, I paused and wondered what the hell I was thinking. I'd be working all alone on the forbidding task of conducting in-depth interviews with some of the prison's most violent inmates, many of whom had been assessed as psychopaths. After the interviews, I planned to administer EEG, known as the electroencephalogram tests, Measuring electrical impulses in the brain in response to emotionally loaded words, data that would help us understand the connections
0: between psychopathic brain processes and behavior. Dr. Kent A. Keel is an executive science officer of the nonprofit Mind Research Network. He's a professor of psychology, neurosciences, and law at the University of New Mexico. He's currently directing five major NIH-funded projects in psychopathy and related mental illnesses. His new book is The Psychopath Whisperer, The Science of Those Without Conscience. Thank you for joining me, Kent. Thank you for having me. Kent, this is a very interesting book because it's a science autobiography, it's a look at the neuroscience of psychopathy, and it's a true crime story as well. I'd like you to talk about what originally brought you as a grad student to where we find you at the very beginning of the book at a maximum security prison in Canada
1: at the middle of my undergraduate degree at the University of California, Davis, I kinda had an epiphany. I realized that I was not gonna make a living catching footballs or hitting baseballs, and so I had to use my brain to try to make a career instead of my legs and arms. And so I went to, in great distress, I went to my undergraduate advisor, and she developed with me a plan, and uh, the advice she gave was I wanted, she asked me to go away and come back in a couple of days with five things I would love to study. So it turns out that this academic advisor that I had was also a professor at the University of California Davis, and I'd been her TA for several years as a work-study student, trying to pay off tuition and other things. And so she really thought that I had an academic mind, and so she um, got me to come up with my top five things, and the first three were you know, the brain and how the brain works, and the second one was psychopaths and what's different about psychopaths' brains in particular. And then I also had some interest in a few mm-hmm. other areas, um, th- notably those killer whales, and uh, mm-hmm. comparative cognition questions. And so she set me up with three meetings, both with uh, experts in those three different domains. The one's the brain, uh, the human brain in particular, and the field of mm-hmm. cognitive neuroscience, which was just coming on the kind of scene. And then she sent me to work with someone who studied psychopathy, a guy named Mike Levinson, who's another professor, and then started doing some research with killer whales on the side with a graduate student there at, uh, at UC Davis. But anyway, long story short is they all convinced me that if I really wanted to go into an academic career, I should go study with the most knowledgeable person, most respected person in the world, and that was Robert Hare, Bob Hare. And Bob took me as a student, and it was then that he said, uh, well, if you came up here to study these guys, might as well put you in a maximum security prison where, you know, you can handle yourself, you're a big guy. And so uh, off I went. You know, it was basically trial by fire, uh, sink or swim, you know, just jump in the, the mix of things and see uh, what happened. It's, uh, you know, of course security concerns and everything were generally taken care of, but the actual interviewing assessments, learning all the techniques and that kind of stuff really came from, a you know, a trans- taking all the information that I learned in my training and kind of just throwing it all together in my head and on the drive out there that morning, which I'll never forget, and then just trying to use that information to get all the details out of the inmates that I needed to to help assess psychopathic traits and understand them and how they got that way. So that's how it started. Really haven't looked back since.
0: As a child, you lived in Tacoma during the time when Ted Bundy was active, and that's really where your interest in serial killers began, wasn't it?
1: It's correct. Ted Bundy was uh, just about a quarter or half mile away from uh, his his home uh, there, and my dad was a writer for the local Tacoma News Tribune newspaper, and he was always coming home with these stories about how could some kid from our little sleepy middle-class neighborhood end up to do such bad things and it was something that generated a lot of conversations and it just it just really mystified me it was just something that was so completely different so completely just fascinating really to me that I just decided that that was something that I'd really like to try to make a career and it's also something that I think not a lot of people study and so there's a lot of fascination by the topic but there's not a lot of people who actually get down in the you know, down and dirty and actually go in there and actually interview and assess and work with and try to study, you know, individuals who've done these things. And then want to be an academic and, and, and
0: write papers
1: and try to learn from it and try to do something about it really.
0: One of the things that really interests me about this book is it's the journey of, of really young science. You were the first person who was able to quantify what psychopathy was to work build on the work of Hare and other people who had developed a checklist. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about this kind of checklist that and the beginnings of this whole field of science because the technology was just starting to open up and scientifically people were just really getting ready to understand exactly what psychopathy was in the early 90s. It's right. I mean, for 200 years, psychiatry
1: has been, psychology has been trying to figure out what are the traits? What are the symptoms? How do we quantify this thing that everybody refers to as a a psychopathy? And how do we identify individuals? How do we do that reliably? I mean... For example, you can't just hand a self-report test over to somebody who is pathologically narcissistic and manipulative and lying and hope that you're going to get true answers out of them that are going to tell you that whether or not they score high or low on psychopathy. So what Bob Hare did, one of the most important things that he's done, is he developed an assessment procedure and the checklist is is that. It's 20 items um, and each of the items is scored on a zero, one or two point scale. And in order to get the information, you have to interview the inmate typically for several hours, going over home work, school, family development, you know all aspects of their life, including their criminal behavior and then you have to get collateral information because you have to have information from social worker reports and police reports and credit histories and all sorts of other details in order to assess what, if that what they told you was the truth and then with all this information, you score them on very discrete categories. so the checklist is actually just a formula that helps you to come up with how to score each of those different traits. And it takes quite a long time. It takes, you know, a couple, of three hours a person. And then once we do that as psychology, that's that's what psychology is designed to do, to assess behavior, to assess something reliably, validly. And what's come about is that the psychopathy checklist is a very reliable and valid way of assessing these traits. And then where the rubber meets the road, so to speak, is what's, what is its use? Well, it actually is very useful in the criminal justice system because it, like, predicts recidivism. So if an inmate scores high on that, they tend to be more likely to re-offend and come back. Inmate score is low. They tend to not come back to crime, and so they're a very good risk for release. And so What happens is that when you assess a behavior so carefully or assess a condition, and psychopathy is considered a personality disorder, when you assess it in all these domains of their life and you really accurately do that and you spend a lot of time doing that, well then it's going to turn out that the other techniques that we use, the brain imaging techniques, whether, that the, whether or that's the EEG test that we mentioned, the le- electroencephalography, or whether or not that's brain imaging, like MRI-based techniques, you're gonna find that there's a relationship between that behavior that you took so much time to assess and their brain. Because where does the behavior come from? It comes from their brain. And so when we have the most reliable techniques to assess, we can then figure out what's different about those individuals' brains. And that's been the, the main thing that I've been doing in my career.
0: You know, one of the things we might be tempted to think is that psychopaths are an invention of modern society. It's all the fault of technology and cities and crowding, but that's actually not the case, is it? It's not
1: at all. In fact, um, I mean, you do have to give the media, probably yourself included, some credit because, you know, certainly the term psychopath has become more and more popular with the focus of you know, on certain events, um, sometimes those are bad events. And when you focus on one certain event, that it appears that, that it's often very bad things happening all the time, whereas, and maybe even increasing. But actually, psychopathy is far more banal. I mean, the best literature shows that the traits are very distributed in all populations and tribes from New Guinea to, you know, the Inuit in Alaska. Everybody has varying levels of these traits, and you find that. Different cultures and different groups even have words to describe psychopathy because they have recognized that individuals with these traits are very different from other people in their same tribe or or group or, you know, gathering. And so this is the type of thing that people don't understand is that psychopathy has actually been, you know, fairly commonly assessed and very reliably assessed for some 200 years in terms of people describing these individuals that are so different. And they've written about it since, I mean, Moses was the first person to ever write about psychopathy in the book of Deuteronomy in like 600 BC and so people have been fascinated by these individuals for years and they wrote them in their stories and their books in the Bible and other types of places but it's really been that psychopathy is more than just a single bad event or a single bad thing that someone's done or something like that and and it, it, it is one of those conditions that I think really needs to be carefully defined. We define sometimes behaviors, like someone does something bad, a psychopathic. And that's probably a correct way of describing things. But if you really want to understand when those behaviors and traits cause impairment at home, at work, at school, with family and friends, that's when it rises to the level of a disorder, rises to the level of something that may need treatment or remediation or at least management. And, and that's what the book is about, to help everybody understand how scientists assess psychopathic traits, how we really understand what's psychopathic and what's not, and how you go about then potentially treating or managing the condition.
0: You made a distinction and I think a very helpful uh, one early on between sociopathic tendencies and uh, psychopathic tendencies. I'd like you to explain that to us now.
1: So psychopathy was a term really coined, you know, um, you know, over 150 years ago by a German psychiatrist who uh was the first to use that that term. And then sociopathy was a term coined in the behaviorist era in psychology kind of in the 1930s. And that's when everyone believed that you are a blank slate when you were born. That is, you could be molded into anything from social forces. Hence, the social you know, aspect of the, of the term sociopathy. And what we've realized is that that term is not quite accurate. That is, we all know that you're a function of both your genetics and your environment. And sociopathy really just meant you came from your environment alone. And it's not a term that's used anymore in classic psychiatry or in, hasn't been used in research really for 20 or 30 years. But people still use that term sociopath sometimes and and the more correct term is psychopath I mean that's a term that's agnostic to etiology could be social forces could be genetic but most likely as we all know it's a combination of the two and that's that's the term that's really preferred in in modern academic circles and and there's no assessment procedures for example to study sociopathy um, anymore and I haven't seen an academic paper since about 1960 you know that really talks about that condition but but it's still kind of a popular misnomer
0: one of the things that interests me is that uh, that you mentioned is that psychopaths are really uh, often very highly intelligent, but they're unable to use their intelligence to control their behavior, uh, and they it helps them resist treatment by psychotherapists, which actually sometimes makes uh, the psychopathy worse.
1: Correct. I mean, some people feel that the psychopath is so narcissistic that they just take in the The interpersonal reactions of the therapist on the one-on-one treatment, for example, and that just makes them more egocentric because they like the attention they're getting. But from a and so that's why classic psychodynamic kind of treatments and the Freudian eras and others really failed. And if anything, psychiatrists were left thinking that the person that they just tried to treat, um, if they were a psychopath, actually just got worse or may have even you know aggravated their symptoms. Um, And so that that's a common you know kind of thread that that uh, filtered through in the literature and the you know, um,
0: in that time of that time of uh, history, the the first um, kind of assessment of what a psychopath was came from a book called *The Mask of Sanity*. I'd like you to talk about that and the importance of that, and how that uh, spawned Robert Hare's checklist.
1: So, Hervey Cleckley was the author of that. He was a psychiatrist that worked in in, in the Atlanta area and in, in mental hospitals and in criminal justice settings and in an own private clinic, and Cleckley was someone who was able to really summarize or catalog the symptoms that he saw in these patients that he was seeing and treating in these different institutions and came up with a uh, case descriptions and wonderful di- you know summaries of which symptoms he felt were really s- distinct for psychopathy and differentiated them from other patients that he was seeing who might have a lot of problems but didn't have these types of issues that led them there and Cleckley kind of came up with 17 characteristics that he felt were you know very uh, essential but he did it in a in a way that was kind of like these are the symptoms that I think are important he didn't give any basis for how to assess them reliably or how to come up with a common metric that People can then reliably use, and so what Bob Hare did was, and with his students, was he created a metric, a measure, the checklist that has very explicit scoring criterion for how you go through each of the different items, and how you score them, how you assess them, how you weight them, and how you assign that zero, one, or two for each item, and that's what's become a very reliable index then for psychopathic traits was taking and operationalizing Cleckley's criterion and adding some of his own, uh, and that's what Dr. Hare did when he, uh, Bob Hare did when he when he created the checklist.
0: For all that this book talks about psychopathy, it also talks about you. And I think uh, you're a really fascinating character in this book. You start the book as just this grad student. And on your first day out of grad school, you, you're interviewing, uh you know, psychopathic killers, some fairly serious people. I'd like you to just uh, talk a little bit about your experience doing that. Well, it's, truly surreal. I mean, there's never a time
1: when I sit across the table from somebody who's done things like that, that I don't, thought doesn't cross my mind. What am I doing here? Like this is truly like being in a movie. But I, I find it so fascinating that I just am able to, you know, get up every morning and go into the prisons and actually interview individuals. And, and when you find those ones that score really high, which is just a small percentage of them, that's something that's very different. And they're so unique and so fascinating clinically. It's really just something that I've always been fascinated to study, and so that's what I've done. And with respect to that first day, I mean, it it was a, um, I mean, the Department of Corrections in Canada had already sorted them to try to bring the most high risk, the most dangerous individuals to that treatment program. So they'd already done 90% of the work in trying to find and study psychopathy by a a facility there that they were specifically trying to treat violent offending and, and sex offenders. And so I was in an environment where the rate of psychopathy was upwards of 50, 60%. So every other inmate that I was interviewing was just like classic, off-the-charts, Cleckley material, Bob Hare material, perfect examples of almost all of the traits. And so that was really you know, my, my baptism, if you will, was, uh, was jumping into that Supermax facility and working with those, those very, very, very high-risk inmates
0: you had to learn quickly because you found yourself in a situation where you were working with a couple of inmates that you call Gordon and uh, Gary, and they were playing you, weren't they?
1: I've definitely had a few games played on us and um, definitely had uh, that story for certain was one that, um, you know, it's not uncommon for inmates to try to find a way to get something brought in for them that might make their life more exciting or interesting than the the doldrums in prison, so you definitely have to be aware, you have to develop a sense of insight, you have to be, I don't want to say paranoid, that's not the right word, but you definitely have to just be conscious that they like messing with you and they like doing things. I mean, I've had, um, you know, a lot of research staff have had late night calls where they're like, this happened today, you know, in the prison, what do you think I should do? You know, and they'd be like, well, they're playing you. So go back in the next day and tell them you can't do that and stop playing with us. And that actually, the inmates like it if you come back and you confront them with things, They think that. You know, they they usually say, well, you've earned their respect if you can, you know, say no to them uh, for some of these things. And it's usually trivial things, you know. Make some photocopies for me. Let me borrow your pen. You know, and then they try to take the pen. Things like this. And not tell on them. And so it's usually pretty harmless. But it it definitely can cause some anxiety as it did that first week in me um, if they try to play you uh, up pretty good. So definitely have to be aware. And I, I don't think that's any different than any other person that works in a prison environment. You know, whether you're a correctional officer or you work in administration or you do a police officer or anything like that, you have to have a, a sense about you, about uh, the environment and the types of things that are likely to happen.
0: You sit in a room with a giant silver panic button.
1: A red panic button. It's a big red button. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it kind of sits there on the wall and you just kind of notice it from time to time. It's It's, it's so red that it's like the cover of my book actually. And um, you, you can really, um, it can be distracting sometimes.
0: One of the things I think that is interesting to me is that you had to develop a system for interviewing these people. You went in with one set of interviews and every set of interviews you did gave you more insight into how to interview these people. So talk about developing your interview style to get the kind of information you wanted.
1: Yeah, I mean, you have to be able to glean details about home, at work, at school, with family, with friends, and about how the individual actually interacts in those different environments in order to score them on a trait. A trait is something that's present in all those different domains. And so they have to have, for example, if they lack empathy, you have to see evidence of it in in these different domains in order to reliably assess it. And so I've tailored the interview that we use for the PCLR for, for a long time. And so, for example, you know, one of the things that's It's really difficult to actually ask individuals about generally, but inmates in particular is their sex life. And so you want to ask them about, you know, those types of details. And you can't just come out and ask somebody, you know, have you ever, you know, raped somebody? They go, no. Even people convicted of rape will say no. And so you have to say, you know, tell me about your different dating experiences. Tell me about when a woman said no to you. Tell me about um, these other things. You Give them a chance to tell a story. And then often what might happen is if they have done something bad, they'll actually you know, admit to something they don't even realize they're admitting to it. And that's what the interview is designed to do is to to use probe items in ways that actually get the individuals to talk about things that they've done that they might not necessarily even have the insight to know that it was wrong. But it was wrong. And you also let them tell stories in a positive light so that you try to get them to tell funny jokes and stories. What's the best pranks you've ever played? What's the this, this and this? And they usually always forget about the person they got hurt or injured or lost a finger or whatever. And They'll tell you those stories, and what you're doing is trying to glean information about how they act and behave, and and that's to score high traits, of course, is what we're trying to get out of it. Because I shouldn't forget, in most inmates, 85 percent, they score low, you know, on psychopathy or, or low to medium, and so in those individuals, they'll tell you a story, and you know, you you get what you think is the truth out of them, and it turns out it usually is the truth, and so they're they end up not doing bad things, and not they have good stories perhaps, but they're not necessarily ones that rise to the same level as those in prison. And that's probably been one of the most interesting things is that, you know, most adolescents, including myself, got themselves in a little bit of trouble at some point, whether that was TPing houses or, you know, things like that. And then you start interviewing maximum security inmates who score high in psychopathy and you realize that you were just like in peewee league compared to the things that they did. And so there really is a gradual, you know, a big distinction between the types of things that individuals with these traits have done versus the things that, that you might have done, you know, when you were a kid or whatever. So it really is quite different, quite fascinating.
0: One of the things you do, I think that's really a a chapter that just knocked my socks off, is you compare two presidential assassins, John Wilkes Booth and Charles Guiteau, to evaluate them on the hair psychopathy scale. So talk about deciding to do that because that plays into, I think, the overall structure of the book.
1: Well, it does. And uh, it was actually a chapter that wasn't included in the original book proposal. So what happened was when I was trying to come up with a way of summarizing the history of psychopathy and what does it mean to be psychopathic, I was going to just use the two case histories that I summarized, Brian and Eric, in the book. But then I found out that Charles Guiteau's trial had a lot of the hoopla and a lot of the you know, background and assessment of what we call moral insanity. That was one of the things that his psychiatrist was referring to him as having that condition. And that was an early term for psychopathy. And so I went through his history and I went through uh, all, all the presidential assassins, actually, that they had details on. And then I decided to score those two because one, Booth is famous. And the other one is that Gateau is, you know, infamous, but he hasn't actually, uh, I guess they're both infamous, but Booth, no one had ever tried to do this. And so I decided to use them as case histories and as a way of reviewing them and plus uh, there was so much ample information about them available the New York Times archive for example has just dozens and dozens and dozens of stories and then of course historians have written about both of them and so I really found that it was it was easy to without even interviewing them have enough collateral information familial information you know work history information to score the the traits reliably and so I thought it would be a good exercise to, to to educate readers about how you assess those traits and to Not get, for example, overwhelmed with the idea that just because they killed someone in a particularly heinous fashion even was something that might, you know, dictate their score
0: to a great extent, for example. This is what you call the index offense. Talk a little bit about the importance of the index offense and of ignoring the index offense when you're evaluating somebody's condition. Yeah, you know, one of the most common things we find
1: when you're teaching uh, clinicians and people how to assess psychopathic traits is to, is to not look at what they one crime they did that got them in prison, and that's because if that one crime was bad, it often gives like a halo effect, and so all of the traits are then scored kind of weighting that one thing, whereas you really need to weight that that item only as. Specific to that that incident, so it might score high. It might help score, you know, in one domain. But you've got to look for the traits at other areas of their life, and that's because we're studying traits. We're not studying situationally specific behaviors. We're studying and trying to assess lack of empathy, for example, in all the different domains. And so, if somebody just has lack of empathy in one domain of their life, like their criminal behavior, and and let's say they're burglars or something, and they go and they break into houses and trash the house and then but they otherwise have a you know they keep a job and they have a normal relationship with a family and they other things and all the same and they just do this one thing to support themselves well that's not evidence of high on the traits might be evidence of moderate levels but it's not evidence of high and so it's really important to be able to ignore that index defense and look for other areas of their life and that's the real focus look at other domains and that's how you get the reliable assessment of the behavior
0: of the trait. One of the things that I found really fascinating about this book is it's kind of a technological history and you are a technological innovator. So I'd like you to talk about um, after you've been working for five years. Guys, you put it living the dream, <laughs> interviewing psychopaths on a daily basis. Talk about meeting uh, Shock Ritchie and your EEG studies and ERPs. It's true. I actually absolutely loved getting up every morning
1: and driving out to the facilities and outside of Vancouver and and going in and interviewing everybody. I mean, it was, (laughs) as I say in the book, it's just never boring. And one day in particular, we had an inmate who uh, I walked in, I think it was a Sunday morning, the inmates were just lining up to watch uh, football. So it was like 8 a.m., East Coast games were just starting, and there was a whole new group of inmates that had come in for treatment, about 25 of them in the last couple of days. And so this, all of a sudden, this one inmate just walked out of his cell completely naked and walked down the tier. And he didn't stop and go into the shower, but he walked downstairs out underneath, you know, uh, into the first level and out through the, the double doors into the yard and then walked around in the freezing rain for, I don't know, felt like forever, but it was probably only 10, 15 minutes. And then he came back in and went down to his cell, went in again, went and showered. And everybody in the whole prison was like, what's going on, you know? And is this guy someone who's, you know, kind of crazy or is he just, you know, is this something <laughs> that he has to do? <laughs> Who knows? And that, he, that was Jacques as first impression of him. And uh, as you know, he's actually does that behavior just to get people to go, what's going on? And make them pay attention to him. So he establishes himself as somebody who's basically could do anything. And it does it in such a way that it's not considered, you know, violent. He doesn't get in anyone's face. He doesn't do anything. But even the biggest, you know, strongest inmates at that facility just stayed away from him. They just like it's not worth it, and so that's what he was trying to do. But the technology side of things has been the EEG work has been we can. EEG is a very sensitive measure you know, to brain processing and so it measures EEG at the millisecond time window so you can present a stimulus and you can actually measure you know the eyeballs response the four layers of the retina responding and then you can see it traverse to the back of the head and the visual system responding and all of the other processes that come online whether or not that's some language and memory and decision-making all of those things can be parsed out of this EEG and event related potentials that's a technique where you present stimuli to individuals say emotional words versus neutral words and you can get a an average response of what the brain looks like when it sees an emotional word versus what the brain looks like when it sees a neutral word. And then you can compare them and find out which time windows, which time sinks, which ones are different for emotional versus neutral words. And it turns out that the brain, for example, automatically differentiates an emotional word from a neutral word. So if I was to present to you love, warm, you know, and then positive ones and then negative things. Hate, kill, may, murder, And then neutral things, table, chair, arm. It turns out that your brain within 200 milliseconds will differentiate emotional versus neutral words. Even if I haven't asked you to do emotional versus neutral things with them, just read them as words. And so this is an automatic thing that occurs, and it doesn't occur in psychopaths. That is, those emotional circuits that differentiate automatically, they don't come to pass. And so they can look at the word and see murder as just like a neutral word. Their brain doesn't give them that boost. And what's really interesting about this is, you know, we don't come out of the womb knowing how to read. And so for some reason, as we learn how to read and as we develop, we can see that the brain and when it starts to diverge and to differentiate emotional from neutral words. And psychopaths don't do that. It's like they miss some sort of critical developmental period where that happened, or their brain just didn't go along that path. And that's what this technique, this EEG and ERP technique is capable of helping us
0: understand. Well, this was your first discovery of, I, I would guess, uh, something quantifiably different between psychopaths and normal human beings, and this is, I think, a, a huge deal because this is where it's gone out of the wor- realm of words and assessments to uh, a little graph you can look at and say, yes, that is there. It, it's like a, you know, a radar map.
1: Absolutely, you know we, we and you, what you're trying to say is I, I mean, a saying is that it's actually a, it's a very it was very sensitive to psychopathy. So we found a number of these EEG markers that indexed psychopathic traits that didn't appear to be related to anything else, like you know intelligence or IQ or substance abuse or anything else. And so that was really exciting when we were started to use that technique. In fact, one of the brain waves that we, we studied in a big sample, like 80 inmates, uh, 40 of whom were psychopaths and 40 of whom were not. In that study, the research assistant that I gave the data to, he was able to correctly classify, just from visual inspection of the waveforms, all the psychopaths into the right group, and he only missed one of the non-psychopaths. And so the waveform was very much like a diagnostic marker you know, for psychopathy.
0: Now, part of this this whole technological study is the development of something you call tasks. And one of the key tasks that shows up early and then comes back with a vengeance is the oddball task. So tell us what the oddball task is and what tasks are in general and how you go about developing them.
1: Well, there's first, there's a wide variety of different types of tasks, you know, whether or not you want to see someone's language, like we mentioned, those emotional versus initial words, or you want to look at memory, for example, and so, But the, the task that you're asked about is an oddball task. This is a, since 1964, I think, was the first paper this study was published in. What it is is it's an index of kind of an orienting response. And so the example I use is there was a, my uh, two dogs and I and a colleague were hiking in the Kings Canyon National Forest just south of Yosemite, and we'd been out in the woods for 10, 15 days, and we were exhausted, and we're hiking out, and everyone's tired. And as we go down this little path. It's just gorgeous scenery and i'm not really paying any attention and all of a sudden i heard this noise and one of my dogs andy she heard it as well and she walked over there and was looking at what this noise was And it sounded like a bird like stuck under a rock and so we both had like a what i would refer to as an orienting response a novelty response and that that elicits an oddball response only happens once in a while and so she jumps back up in the air when she went over and stuck her nose under this rock and attached to her backpack that she was wearing was a baby rattlesnake and I flicked it off with my trekking pole and I was like, and everybody looked at each other, the other dog had watched this and my friend had seen this and so all of us were like, what was that? And so then we were all learned from that experience and so we all had that orienting response which facilitates learning and the next time, because we actually heard it two more times that day, all the baby rattlesnakes were out to party I guess and so the, this this uh, same trail sitting in the sun, we saw, heard it again and so the rattle wasn't formed in these baby rattlesnakes, that's why it sounded so different and so, the dog and me and every you know and my cl- colleague all jumped out of the way when we were uh, heard the next sound, and so that's where it becomes a learned response and that elicits a, a a known response that is referred to as a target detection. So, way I can translate this in the laboratory and create this task from like a real world environment like I just described is that I put you in the in the MRI or put you in the EEG scanner, and I I have you listen to tones, and a lot of the tones happen all the time like a background and you're just ignoring them. And then occasionally I, I present a tone to you that's higher and you have to press a button for that tone. Well, that's like the snake that occurred on the second occurrence. You've learned that's important. You press the button quickly and your brain has a big response that I know that was my important tone. And then I can also study the funny odd tones too. And so I can present novel things to you and generate that first initial orienting response. Well, it turns out that this oddball response is very sensitive to brain problems. So if you have a memory problem or if you have a attention problem or you have an emotional problem, all of the circuits that coincide to help you process that sound, evaluate its meaning, and make a decision, somewhere could be impaired. And so these different techniques are very valuable for assessing that. So this oddball brainwave that we refer to is different in people who have depression and individuals who have schizophrenia and individuals who have substance abuse histories all these different conditions and what I did is I took that task and applied it to psychopathy and we found that their brains were very different indeed when it came to looking at those oddball stimuli
0: one of the things I think that's fascinating is the development of technology. You were working with uh, Dr. Mike Gazaniga, I guess and that would be in Santa Barbara? Well, at the time I met Mike, he was at UC Davis, mm-hmm.
1: and then he actually went um, from UC Davis to Dartmouth where he'd actually worked before. And I, when I was at Yale, I worked with him when I was at Dartmouth as well, or uh, when he was at Dartmouth, and when I was in Connecticut, it was only like two hour drive. And then Mike moved to Santa Barbara, and we reconnected again when he founded the Law and Neuroscience Project that was funded by the MacArthur Foundation. And so we worked uh, very closely together for the last, you know, four or five years, you know, on that project. So Mike's had a big influence on my career from the time since I was an undergraduate, because that's when we met when we were both at UC Davis. He was the one of those professors that my uh, undergraduate advisor sent me to meet.
0: I really find that the work that you've done with the MRI, it's just really amazing because you have uh, taken it upon yourself to modify this technology and really change it so that it's much more useful to you and much more useful to studies in the brain. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about you know, the MRI technology, which you say it's just so mind-bogglingly expensive. A, a $2 joystick that you use for your video game costs $2,000 for the MRI,
1: Right. Well, so the MRI is a big magnet, and so, you know, it's anywhere from, you know, 10 to 25, 30,000 times the Earth's magnetic field, depending upon field strength you're working at. And so that magnet means that you can't, you know, you can't stick a regular joystick in there and have people press it to, in response to those emotional or neutral words, for example. And so you have to go out and design a fiber optic joystick, you know, that has n- just glass and plastic, so there's no metal in it, so it won't get stuck to the side of the magnet or, or hurt the person inside the magnet if it flies in so that was the place when we started this research in the early 90s, was that no one had built any of those devices, no one had those things off the shelf ready to be purchased. And so one of the things I did is I had to go find a person to build me one of those, and it turns out I got lucky in this company called Lightwave Medical in Vancouver, and I just went out and found them uh, through some friends, and it turns out they were willing to build these devices, and they still sell them. And the company has changed names, but they still sell these devices that, uh, that I designed when I was an undergrad- or uh, graduate student. And uh, they're now used around the world to help solve the same problem for other people. And, and that's the type of thing that we had to go through. But, of course, the, the real big question was, how do you get a magnet into a maximum security prison? Or do you transport the inmates from maximum security out to the university hospitals and scan them? Well, we did that. We scanned 50 inmates in five years. We transported them from maximum Why well, didn't. The, ma- <laughs> the Department of Corrections did. They transported them from maximum security down to the university hospital an hour away and we went in one at a time and scanned them in the MRI scanner and they put them back in there and drove them home. And we did 50 inmates like that in five years. It's very exciting. Every single day was very exciting. Inmates were all, liked it because they got to get-out-of-jail-free card and we get to feed them pizza for lunch, which, you know, was a nice perk for them. And that's a great way to do a dissertation, get 50 subjects. But it wasn't a great way to make a career. And so I realized that at some point I was going to have to either find a prison that was going to buy an MRI scanner and put it in there so we could study them where I was going to have to figure out a way to take it to them. Now at some level I just decided that I wanted to build a mobile MRI scanner, one that was capable of doing all the things that we wanted to do. And that, that's what we did. I was in Connecticut. I was at Yale. I was very happy. I was working and doing everything I wanted to do, but mostly studying people in the community. And then a colleague called me from New Mexico and he said, would you be interested in coming here? And he was also recruiting a good colleague of mine, uh, Vince Calhoun, who's been my long-term collaborator. And he said, "You guys want to move here?" And Kent, you can buy your mobile MRI, and Vince, you can get another MRI for your research that's you know sits at the university. And I said, "Okay." <laughs> I mean, it was a pretty easy decision, but it was kind of like a startup company, you know, because we had to build this thing from scratch. And Siemens was really great working with us, and the the manufacturer of the mobile MRI was called Medical Coaches, and it's upstate New York. And spent a lot of trips up there designing and redesigning and building and customizing, and we ended up building the putting the fastest MRI scanner that's ever been put in a trailer. They they really everybody stepped up and just built an amazing machine. It was it was really quite exciting, still is actually.
0: It's a really a uh, significant piece of technology. This isn't just uh, an MRI; it's a huge computer network, and you had to really up the MRIs game because the limit was five hundred twelve images, and and you that wasn't good enough for what you were doing. No, I mean, and today we collect like fifty images in five hundred milliseconds,
1: and so. You know, literally a thousand images a second. And so it's unbelievably fast now system in terms of it rivals like Lucasfilms in terms of the volume of data that comes off the MRI scanner when we're doing this functional MRI task or mapping, you know, how your brain is, is processing and functioning in real time. And so th- th- that amount of t- it's terabytes of disk space, it is it is a totally tricked out system when it comes to all of the peripherals that we have to have in there to monitor you, to um, look at your eye movements, to see if you're looking at what we're asking you to look at, to uh, making sure you're pressing that fiber optic response device and integrating all of that information into one common stream so that we can go do the analysis on it, which are equally as, as time consuming. And so no, it's a it's a pretty neat system. I've had a lot of help and a lot of collaborators have helped to put it together been refined a few times. We continue to update it. In fact, we just went through a major upgrade uh, a couple weeks ago, where now it's as fast as any machine in the country. It's, it's, just, it, it's a pretty impressive device. And it's really allowed us to access and, and study forensic populations in, in large numbers. I mean, it's really designed to be able to go out to any remote population and, and provide this, the science or the services that we provide, the imaging services, and then to come back. And so it, it really has worked well. In fact, other people are starting to copy it.
0: It's interesting to me that you're working on both sides of the spectrum. On one hand, you're in the room with the inmates, and you've got these great scenes where you're, you know, removing the shackles from shock, Richie, (laughs) and, you know, interviewing these guys. And on the other hand, you're uh, innovating these high-tech solutions. And I'd like you to talk about that. For you as a scientist, that's an interesting career to go back and forth between those two very different disciplines. It is, and, and it's one that that I have really enjoyed
1: because, you know, I, I really enjoy the clinical aspect of interviewing inmates, of assessing them, of understanding where they come from, and that makes me a better scientist on the back end when I try to design those tasks that you mentioned so that I can probe and figure out what might be different, what might be wrong, and then uh, uh, back to a clinician again because then I'm trying to understand how I can translate and develop maybe some form of a treatment or management strategy that mitigates those problems they have. And the scientific side of stuff, I've always been a tinkerer when it comes to, um, and, a, and a math person if you will, when it comes to understanding and implementing you know, the best science to analyze this data. Because you can imagine all the time and energy that goes into the assessments and all the time and energy that goes into the MRI stuff and then the analysis. I didn't want to do analysis that wasn't the best. And so I have really focused on the technology side of things in order to make sure that we were doing the best possible science. And I mean, the reason why is that of any condition that I've, I've studied, this is very important. You know, it's very important for the legal system. It's very important for the, you know, the medical community to understand what's different about this condition. So I didn't want to do science that was just uh, small potatoes. I really wanted to, to try to make a mark by presenting the best possible science. And and that, that's why I've, I've just been so pedantic about learning the methods and studying the methods and, and teaching the methods and refining the methods um, and the technology um So that we can do the next best things and and don't get me wrong i've relied on a lot of people you know to help implement some of the things. I go to a lot of meetings um scientific meetings where i'll go you know track somebody down and buy them a beer and a burger and make them tell me everything there are secrets that they've implemented at their site, and then sometimes I fly them out to you know Albuquerque now and have them work together on something, and then maybe we'll write a paper together. But I've really found that that's one of the most enjoyable sides of of being in science is to be able to go out and and bring the latest state of the art stuff to the question of interest in this case, psychopaths, and 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 it's been just a fantastically fun and you know the best advice I had was you know if you want to have a career or a job you know it's kind of what Chris Rock said actually too which is you know you I like to get up every morning and know that I'm really going to get a chance to enjoy what I'm doing and and that's what I've been able to do as I've just been able to pick something that that
0: I fit right in, and and uh, well, it's just never boring. Is really what it is. I have to ask you one kind of uh, dweeby technical question. You talk about uh, writing scripts to do some of your distributed data processing, which is uh, super cutting edge. Are those Unix scripts or DOS scripts, or are they some other language? Uh, they're both DOS,
1: or sorry, both Unix scripts. And originally they were DOS scripts, and then there are Unix scripts, and then uh, MATLAB scripts. So MATLAB's a oh yeah actually MATLAB. a program. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. Matlab, MATLAB is a programming language, uh, higher order language. Actually developed at the University of New Mexico, oddly enough, mm. um, but we used it all over. It's used it all over the world. It really helps to visualize and and assess and uh, matrices. And so we're dealing with big matrix. Uh, matrices of data and we manipulate those matrices, whether it's you know to do a statistic or whatever we're gonna do with the data. And so it's designed to do that. So almost all of the scripting is done in one of those three different languages. Um, oddly enough, we actually still use DOS for it's now freely available, but we still use DOS for one, uh, little thing that we like to do in the MRI scanner. (laughs) But, um, but generally, almost everything is done either on a you know a Linux or a, uh, workstation
0: or in MATLAB. One of the things I think that makes this book so powerful are the stories you tell. The final chapter, it's really exciting and, and interesting and draws together all the threads that you set up. Well,
1: I took a page out of that from uh, John Seabrook, who, as you know, wrote an article on my lab and, and the work that we do for The New Yorker, and it came out kind of Thanksgiving week 2007, I believe. And John and I spent a lot of time together, and he's a, he's a gifted writer. He's written several other books and things. and. I basically took a page from how he writes New Yorker articles, which is to have a number of different intersecting themes, you know, punctuated by the, you know, like I said, the real life stories, and then it puts you right there, you know, interviewing inmates, and then background and history of different cases. So I, I designed specifically designed the book to have that kind of flow to it, and then to come together at different points, which build upon the story, which then culminates in, as you said, in that last chapter, uh, last couple chapters. And so I, I really wanted to, you know, do do, do something that the readers would enjoy, um, and and see if they enjoy
0: reading it as much as I enjoyed writing it. Now I, I want to talk a little bit about the the beginnings of psychopathy because parents, uh, this is a, one of the things that's uh, I think intense and and disturbing, and I guess very sad in this book. Assessing these traits
1: in little kids is is very challenging from a from a psychology perspective, just trying to figure out how and when you can assess these traits. From a should we moral perspective, you know, assess these traits in little kids, and um, and then from an implementation perspective, how do you, you know, work with parents or kids uh, and and help them understand that they, you know, they're we don't know if they're having a, a kid that might end up on this trajectory towards developing, you know, into a psychopath, but that we really want to study and make sure that we can figure out how to remediate them before they get bad. So it's childhood traits are, are very difficult to study very for all of those different reasons and so I think that uh, one of the reasons why I wrote this book was to try to educate the reader about what these traits are how they're assessed and I've already received dozens of emails from parents who have said the same things that I've talked about in the book which is that I've got a child who's not learning from punishment who is doing these bad things and you know the psychiatrist first told me he was ADHD and we put him on Ritalin made him worse You know, and then they said there was bipolar disorder. The next diagnosis du jour, as we say in the field, Um, and it's really just a—it's a poor implementation. It's parents searching for answers, and the mental health community not knowing the best way to assess it, or just following into their old dogma and not going beyond to try to figure out what might be really something that could work. And then there's a lot of colleagues and academics, you know, who teach parents. Better parenting practices, alternative parenting practices, for example, using positive reinforcement rather than punishment to help shape the behavior of some difficult kids. You know, how to keep kids engaged the whole time so that they don't have time to go get themselves in trouble and how to focus them on pro-social activities rather than antisocial activities. And so there's just a whole slew of things that you can do as a parent already, you know, to help mitigate the chances that that, um, a child might continue to reinforce those bad behavioral patterns. And then they might matriculate into adolescent problems and then even up into, you know, serious adult problems. And I, I think that's for the parents that call me. That's the advice that I try to give them is to try to help them, you know, understand that there's a lot they can do and there's a lot that they should do. And these are some of the things that they I would recommend, you know, when working with a kid who might have some of these early traits. And, and you know, I get a lot of feedback from parents that they appreciate the 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 thoughtfulness and the carefulness in which we try to describe these things and you know we don't want to make sure we don't stigmatize the child and as a psychopath and I talk about that in the book about a couple times where that's happened and very bad outcomes and so that that's something that is just is very important to to just think carefully about and to try to um, not overreact but just take the information in and think about it and then see if you can come up with a path to how to you know help with this because it is a problem I mean. All the adult psychopaths I've worked with had unbelievably you know, disruptive uh, childhoods and adolescents. And so all the warning signs were there. So it's just a matter of trying to help understand and how to treat or remediate those things until f- they get to the point where they end up in, in an adult facility.
0: You, with your fMRI techniques as you develop these, you uh, were able to develop a very specific diagnosis as to what causes uh, psychopathy? And this came to you when you started looking at uh, the brain using Broadman's levels. So talk about the Paralymbic system and Broadman's labels. Right, so when we scanned those 50 or so inmates in, in, in Canada and Vancouver
1: and then we did all those EEG studies, they kind of all came together one day in a lecture when I was teaching at Yale where another faculty member presented a slide that showed an anatomical organizational kind of grouping of different brain regions. And I thought I had kind of a weird cluster of regions of the brain that I thought were going to be, you know, didn't make any theoretical sense. And so then it just, it turns out that all of the regions that I'd been finding had been in different or abnormal in psychopathy were all part of a system that a guy in 1909 described as having similar types and layers and organization of neurons. So it's called cytoarchitectonics. And this Limbic system that includes regions adjacent to it are paralimbic. This paralimbic system included all of the areas that we were finding were impaired in psychopathy. And because it shares the same neural circuitry, the same types of neurons and types and classes, it's supposed to be developmentally following a similar trajectory. So it's a systems level kind of approach to understanding this, this, this psychopathy. And so it's those regions of the brain that we think are developing along an abnormal pattern. And that's what we've been, you know, focused on testing hypotheses about those systems developing abnormal, possibly influenced by some sort of genetic vulnerability, and that when those two things coalesce—that is, a genetic vulnerability and an environment that helps to precipitate or, you know, create those types of stresses that system—until then, the behaviors tend to, you know, become more reinforced, the bad behaviors. That's when we think you end up with something who scores high in psychopathy. So, th- that's that was the it was another light bulb moment when that slide went up on the screen and I was like, what, you know, that's the paralympic system. And then it was the description. And so that environment at Yale was really, really just can't say enough about how it helped shape the science that I continued to do the rest of my career. And, you know, the ability to have a firm theoretical background and grounding into the, the understanding the the reasons. And so that was the paralympic theory that I developed about psychopathy. And I, I, I came at it from a white animal literatures and, you know, human brain damage literatures and all sorts of other things kind of came together all into one nice big theory um, about which regions of the brain we think are impaired. And then generally, my colleagues in the field have all, they all agree that, um, you know, we disagree sometimes which regions of the paralympic system are most important, but we generally all agree that those are, those are areas that are implicated. And then there's also sometimes downstream effects, you know, outside that region that are sometimes influenced. But, but generally, I think that um, around the world, there's been a, a kind of a huge amount of research that supports that those are the systems that appear to be impaired or abnormal in psychopathy.
0: We're awash in all sorts of spree killings and teenage killings, but these people, though we might want to think of them as psychopaths, they generally are not. Are, isn't, is that the case? So It is the case. And so most of the type of like spree
1: shootings, for example, um, you know, Lofner in Arizona who went and killed Giffords, uh, Representative Gifford, and, or, or tried to kill and then killed several other people, um, you know, Holmes up in, in, uh, in Aurora, Colorado, and then, you know, all the other ones that have happened like that, or the vast majority of them, appear to be someone who has very different types of problems than psychopathy, much more likely having some sort of delusions or hallucinations and abnormal beliefs about things, and then they have some sort of fatalistic vision that that's what they should go do. So that's very different than psychopathy. Psychopaths are usually not like that at all. They usually don't do you know that type of, uh, of spree, you know related killing. Uh, now it might not be the case like uh, then again, I, I have to qualify that because sometimes like columbine, might have been some weird combination of someone who might have been a little bit psychopathic or, or significantly psychopathic, i have not assessed them, and then someone else who has some other vulnerabilities, and the two of them got together and did something really bad. And so sometimes it's it's individuals who might do those things, might be a little bit high, but usually the ones that do it, that we worry about, that do it um, like like those other individuals, uh, are, are doing it more because they're psychotic. That is, they're, they're having um, fractionated belief systems, fractionated reality, um, and they, they have a delusion you know, that this is something that they should go do. And, you know, that's not something that we usually see in psychopathy.
0: One of the things about psychopathy is that it seems like when you first present it to us in the book that there's no cure, that it's just a diagnosis and there's nothing you can do about it. But you described something you call the decompression chamber created by the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center. Talk about that and how, how that offers some non-trivial amount of
1: hope. So it's true. For years and years, everyone felt that individuals with psychopathy were not treatable. That is, they just, if anything, they sometimes got worse if you tried to put some form of cognitive treatment or, or psychodynamic treatment. But then a group of guys, you know, psychologists in Wisconsin, were tasked by their state legislature to create a treatment program for maximum security, high-risk, juvenile offenders. And they weren't sent just the average juvenile offender they were sent only the juvenile offenders that couldn't be managed anywhere else in the department of corrections in wisconsin so they were sent the most difficult kids in the in the state and kids from all sorts of backgrounds from good backgrounds terrible backgrounds worst backgrounds imaginable and violent Uh, most of these kids had four or five felony convictions um, often uh, for violent crimes and what they did is they developed a treatment program that's based on positive reinforcement and using what's called contingency management stuff in psychology. That's the reward small things and it gets graduated and uh, they learn that if they're good, they get better and better, and better things and they get happier and happier and happier. And they really uh, removed punishment, so they they don't you know take all their privileges away for long periods of time. They will take them away for short periods, but if they're good, they can get them right back and they can. They've re completely flipped this correctional model on its head. And this program takes about a year of the kids going through the program if they get out sooner or transfer to something it doesn't af- work and so really a year to 14 months and what they've seen is that when the kids go through this program and most of these kids are on this most probable diagnosis or trajectory to developing a high-scoring uh, as adults on psychopathy so these are kids that are at the steepest highest risk you know for lifetime antisocial and psychopathic diagnosis after they go through this treatment program they followed them up. They looked and saw which ones reoffended and which ones didn't. They went and they looked at the rest of the, the prison population in Wisconsin, juveniles, and found out how they reoffended and not the ones that were untreated or treated in the system as normal. And we very encouraged by their results. What they found is this type of schedule of treatment uh, reduced violent recidivism by over 50%. And that's something you just can't overshadow. I mean, you can't underplay it. I mean, it's just unbelievable progress. And really, I think it's the first attempt at a system-wide level to develop a state-of-the-art treatment, specifically recognizing how these traits and behaviors can be managed or can possibly be treated, and designing a scientific program of treatment that actually can reshape the person's behavior in such a way that it's prosocial and not antisocial.
0: And psychopathy is an expensive disease, kills more people every year than 9-11.
1: It's a staggering, the statistics. So the social cost of crime, according to the best economist, is about $3.2 trillion a year, trillion. To give it some weight, that's about $10,000 for every single man, woman, and child in the United States. That is the social cost of crime. That's more than we spend, by the way, on all health care in the United States. And so psychopathy is roughly gonna be about 20% of those costs, because, or maybe even more, because psychopaths commit the most expensive crimes. They often commit, more likely to commit homicide and other types of crimes. So the social cost of psychopathy is like orders of magnitude more than any other condition. And so this juvenile treatment program, when they did a cost analysis, and what's exciting about the program is these guys went out and they published in the peer review literature, all of the results, let them get debated by academics and make sure that they're doing it right and they're doing it correctly. And they did this economic analysis. And what they showed was that for every $10,000 the state invested in their treatment program, it saved seventy thousand dollars in reduced incarceration costs and other criminal justice costs in a four-year period. So that what that just means is that the kids, because they're doing well in the treatment program, they don't get new additional uh, additions to their sentence. So they get out sooner, and then they don't commit crimes, and so they don't come back to prison. And so they saves money because the kids are now back, you know, and then they're also, which they didn't compute, but generating tax dollars because they're obviously out there working and leading a better life in terms of non-antisocial life, non-violent life. And so all of those things uh, lead to the economics that say that the more you invest in this treatment program, the better your long-term you know, outcomes. And I have to say that the thing, probably the statistic that's most grabbing is that the kids in the control group, the kids that didn't get the treatment at MJTC, the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Program, they killed 16 people in the four-year follow-up period the kids that went through treatment, even though 15, 20% still re-offended, they didn't kill anyone. So the point there is that how do you measure the cost of those 16 homicides that were committed by the other kids that went untreated versus the ones that didn't? I mean, all these problems we have with crime and violence and homicide you know, in the United States, if every single state adopted that program, you could reduce the rates of homicide unbelievably. I mean, you, you couldn't eradicate it, but you might get to the point where it's more like a, you know, uh, it's something that we, we we just aren't even used to seeing anymore. Um, so that, that's the hope for, that's the real thing that we're excited about in the field is this idea that, that there might be a way to at least turn their behavior around so that it's not so violent or antisocial. Um, and, and we don't know if we're curing psychopathy, but we certainly believe that we're actually able to actually make some difference.
0: One of the things this book... Uh looks at is the impact of your hard science in terms of understanding what the paralymbic system is and understanding what these brainwaves mean, things that we can measure and, and write down and see for to be facts on the legal system. So that we have come to the point, once again, where moral insanity is something that we can talk about, but we can talk about it in meaningful terms now.
1: Neuroscience has really invaded you know, the legal system in a sense of giving people a, a different understanding now of, of, of how the brain might differ in individuals with these traits or individuals with schizophrenia or individuals with some other type of uh, problems or mental illness. And the legal system is now having to adjust to determine should that change the way we sentence individuals, should that change the way we, we treat them, should that change the way we think about their levels of responsibility for certain Criminal acts, for example, and so the neuroscience is just kind of reinvigorating the debate you know about the criminal justice system generally and, and, and in particular how you address and deal with these you know types of problems and we're seeing more and more what we call mental health courts popping up around the country and, and not that dissimilar from drug courts where individuals who have substance abuse problems or have some mental health problem go to a different adjudicated system and they get treatment rather than just incarceration. And the idea there is that the treatment is likely to help improve outcomes and reduce the chances they come back you know, to the attention of the criminal justice system. And I think that more and more effort, if we've spent resources on treating first-time offenders, treating high-risk offenders, treating first-time adult offenders, not just the youth, with the types of programs that we have at the Mendota Juvenile Treatment Center, that could go a long way towards making society a safer and better place.
0: I've been speaking with Dr. Kent A. Keel. His new book is The Psychopath Whisperer, The Science of Those Without Conscience. Thank you for speaking with me, Kent. Thank you very much for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.